Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for listening. The program 1A convenes a daily conversation focusing on important issues of our time. The show airs weekdays at 10 a.m. on W-A-B-E. Later this hour, I'll talk with the new host of 1A, Jen White. First, at the height of the protests following the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and Rayshard Brooks, streaming giants like Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon Prime showcased their selections of films featuring black actors, directors, and writers. Joining me now with their own list of film recommendations during the era of Black Lives Matter are Emory University professors Nasinga Burton, co-director of the Film and Media Management Concentration, and Deanza Rogers, filmmaker and assistant professor in the Department of Film and Media Studies. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you so much. You have a list of five films to share today. We'll talk about each individually. But first, what did you have in mind overall when deciding upon which films to recommend. This is Danza. I initially thought of narrative films before I thought of documentaries. When you have rebellions and protests, I always think about the dramatic um, interpretation of history that filmmakers are making and you know what their interpretation is and how I feel about them. And sometimes I feel those are stronger than documentaries. So I initially gave a list of all narrative films and then we kind of broke down those films and added a couple of docs to them and then kind of just picked from there. Let's begin with the first film on your list, which is Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, released in 1989. Lee created the movie as a reaction to the murders of black people at the hands of white mobs and brutal police during the 1980s. 
The movie takes place on one city block in Brooklyn on a hot summer day. Would you describe what transpires over the course of the film? Do the Right Thing is a brilliant film for many reasons, one of which is the filming of the protest or uprising scene uh, in the film, which we hadn't seen in a while when that film came out. It is a day taking place in Brooklyn and a lot has happened that day. We are introduced to lots of different characters who coexist, who have raging stereotypical ideas about one another. We get an opportunity to see um, the problematic power relationships in the neighborhood between people. We get to see lots of things that are happening. And we basically see a, a borough that's on the brink of, of explosion based on how hot it is, which it has everyone on edge. And then on top of that, all these other factors, you know, multiracial groups of people trying to coexist peacefully despite the power structure that's in place that really marginalizes people even in their own community. So at this particular time in the film, you have a response to one of the beloved characters in the film who really is kind of of a, a griot of, of sorts, um, Radio Rahim, who really preaches love over hate through uh, most of the film. He's a big guy, so people are bend to his will, if you will, um, but he, he's respected, not just because he's a big guy, but also because he's, he's a philosopher of sorts, a griot, someone who tells stories of love and tries to bring people together. The hype! Newest latest. Let me tell you the story of right hand, left hand. It's a tale of good and evil. Hey, it was with this hand that Cain iced his brother. Love. These five fingers, they go straight to the soul of man, the right hand, the hand of love. The story of life is this, static. One hand is always fighting the other hand, and the left hand is kicking much ass. I mean, it looks like the right hand love is finished, but hold on, stop the presses, the right hand's coming back. Yeah, he got the left hand on the ropes now. That's right. Yeah. Ooh, it's a devastating right and hate is hurt. Down. Ooh, ooh, left hand hate KO'd by love. If I love you, I love you. But if I hate you, there it is, love and hate. I love you, bro. I guess we should tell people that there's spoilers if you haven't seen these films, but when he is unceremoniously murdered by police officers, uprisings happen. And these are fantastic performances by Danny Aiello, obviously Bill Nunn, both of them have passed on. And of course, Spike Lee, who plays Mookie, who delivers pizza for Sal's Pizzeria. This is where it all happens. And so he has a, what he thinks is a decent relationship with Sal, although he has a problematic uh, relationship with one of Sal's sons played by John Turturro, who does not like Black people, hates that they're in the neighborhood, even though his father has been there for decades, doesn't want to continue staying there. So they have this push and pull within their family unit. And so when this happens based on some really outrageous behavior and uh, unprovoked behavior by South, I would add, you get, you know, one of the, I guess, I would say probably, and they, you can co-sign or not, one of the most powerful and intense protests filmed during that particular period of, of time. And so it's a brilliant film on many levels.
I'd co-sign on that, but I'd also say when we talk about the spook who sat by the door, I think that's one of the best protest scenes I've ever seen on film. That is the best. Spook is the best. Like, everybody else is trying to do that. Right, right. And I think that moment in Do the Right Thing that everyone talks about that, you know, those performances, but that moment of the trash can going through the window and, you know, that conflict that I'm not sure why there's a conflict between you know, property over, you know, a state-sanctioned murder by the police of this Black man over a radio and a pizzeria, right? Where we're having a conversation more about looting than we are, or property damage than we are about the fact that someone was just murdered. So it's like indicative of everything that's happening around us, as well as what continues to happen around us when we talk about people lashing out in some way or protesting in the only ability and the only way they have available to them. That piece that you you said about the end result of these types of altercations, right? Is it really necessary to kill someone because they won't turn down their radio? Is it really necessary to kill someone because they're running away from you? Is it really necessary to kill someone over a, a verbal dispute, you know? And so I think the film does a great job of showing just how these things can get out of hand because people don't really value the lives of Black people in general and people of color in particular, especially in this film. And so this is what happens when you engage or are occupied. You know, you live in a community that is policed and you are policed constantly. Um, You are going to have these altercations. You are going to have these issues come up. What is the best way to handle them? But, you know, Spike Lee does a great job of showing us the the worst way (laughs) to handle that is the taking of someone's life. But it seems to also be the norm, which is the problem, right? The worst way seems to be the default way. Yes, yes. Well, that's part of what's so stunning about this film is I watched it again just the other night and I felt sickened by the fact that it could have pertained to something that took place a few weeks ago. The genius of Spike Lee comes through in so many aspects of this film. I was hoping you'd talk about the way he puts the camera at an angle. Would you talk about that device just to further make the viewer off balance or feel unsettled? Well, that's part of the cinematography, right? That's part of the language of cinema where you purposely choose certain types of angles to make me feel something viscerally. I may not understand, you know, while I'm looking at it, why I feel the way that I do, but the language of cinema has taught us or trained us to feel a certain way. If the camera is canted, meaning at an angle, I'm a little off kilter. I'm feeling a little strange and I'm not necessarily sure why. I know that the world is supposed to be straight up and forward this way, but now we're looking from below, looking up at a character, showing that character has some type of power within the space or within the situation, and then it's a little canted. So that power is overpowering me in some kind of way. So he makes these really brilliant choices when it comes down to the shots. And Ernest Dickerson is the the cinematographer and is beautifully shot and beautifully rendered. The colors, the way that people's skin tones are rendered is really beautifully done. So there's all these things that Spike is doing in terms of people behind the camera making these visual shots and this visual language work, not just the angles, but also how people are looking and the color choices that he has. But there's that image of when the garbage can goes through the window, which is an iconic image. Anyone sees it, they know exactly what that's from. 
The cast is stupendous. I mean, these could be textbook examples of brilliant acting on the part of Ossie Davis and and Ruby Dee. And the tenderness that comes out of their characters peppered with a lot of humor for for what is ultimately this ghastly story. Spike manages to infuse some comic relief. Yeah, I mean, there's humor in every tragedy, right? Spike Lee is brilliant at that. And, you know, one of the ways in which people survive, people who are marginalized in society is through humor, the ability to see the irony in your life existence. If you think about today, the whole Becky and Karen, you know, these white women who are telling on Black people, you know, I say telling on in quotes as if they have power. Most recently, a woman who inserted herself into someone's lives. Her neighbors were building a a patio on their property and uh, she wanted to know if they had permits and was asking them all these questions. And when they refused to answer the questions, you know, she got mad and enraged and, you know, all of these things. So we kind of, we laugh at these incidences, right? Although we know that they can become horrible for the persons of of color, the black people involved. If you don't laugh, you're going to cry. I mean, that, it just comes down to that. Other aspects of the film that are fantastic. Samuel Jackson in the role of the radio DJ, he's sort of the Greek chorus. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. Up you wake, up you wake, up you wake, up you wake. This is Mr. Senior Love Daddy, your voice of choice. The world's only 12-hour strong man on the air. Here on We Love Radio 108 FM. The last on your dial, but first in your hearts. And that's the truth, Ruth. Here I am. Am I here? You know it. It, you know. This is Mr. Senior Love Daddy doing the nasty to your ears, your ears to the nasty. Eyes only play the platters that matter, the matters they platter. And that's the truth, Ruth. From the heart of Bed-Stuy, you're listening to We Love Radio. Doing the yin and the yang, the hip and the hop. The stupid fresh thing, the flippity flop. Oh, I have today's forecast for you. Hot! And I'm thinking about his stature, that of Elsie Davis and Ruby D. Spike Lee was still very young, and yet these highly respected accomplished actors were eager to take part in what he did. Another aspect of the film that I thought was great were the rants on each group. (sighs) Nothing's changed, has it? I think the reason it still resonates today is because it, before the film, these were issues, and after the film, and during the film, these are issues not as if the film itself is going to solve anything. It was made in the 80s and it resonates today at this moment, right now. There is something happening right now that comes from Do the Right Thing. From this, like, and that's what makes Spike just this genius. And you have the reason you have people like Ozzie Davis and, and Ruby D in this film is because they saw that genius in the story and in what he was trying to create. 
And as a filmmaker, if you're trying to bring these really pivotal and, and really important things to the screen, you sell it to them, they, the universe needs to be sold on the thing you're making. And then if you have people like Ruby Dee and Ozzy Davis who are like, yeah, I'm down for this, the universe is gonna say, we're gonna make this work. It's going to work because we have people backing it that believe in it, that are giants in their field who believe in this story and who wanna bring their talents to it. And he also does a great job, I think, of introducing new talent, as is the case in Do the Right Thing, and resuscitating the careers of legends that have kind of gone away by way of Hollywood and how they kind of, you know, dismiss people as they age, particularly women. But I love that about Spike Lee as well, his ability to to really think about who is going to star in his films, of course, along with his casting agent, Robbie Reed you know, their ability to see and to think about people who are um, going to be able to deliver these performances and bring that weight that Day is talking about to the performances so that audiences will buy in to these daring choices and stories that he's telling. The Spook Who Sat by the Door is a film that became difficult to find very soon after its release in 1973 the movie based on the book of the same name by Sam Greenlee tells the fictional story of the first black man in the CIA. Once he leaves the agency, he takes what he learned to Chicago and leads an uprising against the government. The imagery of heavily armed police and military personnel descending on Chicago is reminiscent of the response by authorities to what we've seen during Black Lives Matter protests. Would you first talk about the title of the film? So The Spook Who Sat By The Door, of course, is based on, as you said, the novel by Sam Greenlee. And it's about a man, Dan Freeman, played brilliantly in this film by Lawrence Cook and his climb in American society, despite being, they were called Negroes back then, but a Black person um, in America. And so he's, you know, educated and he gets invited to become a part of the CIA and eventually he's chosen. He wins out over everyone. And so then he uses his tools, uh, what he learns for the CIA and takes it back to his hood in um, South Side of Chicago to train a former gang called the Cobras. So, you know, using the master's tools to dismantle the master's house and helps them to take on these larger systems of oppression, including the police in Chicago. So, you know, the spook was a pejorative term used to describe Black people at one point. And so really it's an embrace and inverting of the meaning of the word spook, you know, who sat by the door, literally sat by the door and learned everything that he could and then took it back to his community to liberate them. And so, you know, it's a brilliant novel. It's a fantastic film. Ivan Dixon is the director, the late great Ivan Dixon. Many people know him from Hogan's Heroes, but I, Ivan Dixon was amazing. You know, he's one of the founders of the Negro Actors Ensemble. He was an activist his entire life. Um, and for him to do this movie at the time, you know, at the height of his popularity in Hollywood, speaks volumes about who he was and where his priorities were. The Spook Who Sat By The Door is probably one of the most important films of that era, particularly because it came out during the Black exploitation era of filmmaking. 
during that time, um, you had some very complicated and problematic images of Black people being produced in Hollywood. Literally, the Black exploitation genre saved Hollywood from economic collapse, um, United Artists. And they were pumping out so many of those films, hundreds of these films, poorly made films with just horrible representations of Black people. So for him to choose to do this film in the midst of that also speaks volumes about his priorities, but also his idea of who he was as an artist and the ways in which art can be used to create social change. There is that scene in The Spooky Sat by the Door where when the rebellion is happening, there are military that come in opposed to just the police. Because at a certain point, the police are overwhelmed, so they bring in the military. Due to increased fighting in Chicago, the president has ordered a brigade from the 82nd Airborne into the war-torn South Side to reinforce the beleaguered National Guard under heavy attack by black guerrillas since late last week. This is Pat Fennell, Chicago. But if you look at what's happening today, in the late 90s, this was a program that was going on, I think, during Eisenhower's time. But as we know it today, in the late 90s, Clinton started the 1033 program, which was the surplus materials from the U.S. military would be sent out to different law enforcement organizations around the country. And they would only be charged the cost of shipping the equipment. So if the LAPD said, I want a tank, okay, sure, you got a tank. You just got to pay for it to get to you from whatever base that the tank is located. So now we have, instead of bringing in the National Guard, we can have a police force that is militarized. We have a police force that is in full riot gear as if they're going into battle. We don't have PPE for our doctors and nurses in the hospital, but we have well-equipped police officers on the street for peaceful protesters. There was a protest for... Elijah, where violinists got together and played the violin, it was moving. There were riot police there to break it up. Riot police in full gear with automatic weapons. Why? You know, you asked about Spike and why the, the movie Do the Right Thing still resonates. And those things like in Spook Who Sat by the Door, it still resonates, but on a different level. We still have the military involved, but in a different way. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with Emory University professors of film, Deanza Rogers and Nasinga Burton, about movies they recommend watching in the era of Black Lives Matter. We'll return after a short break. This is WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. 
Let's return to my conversation with Emory professors Nasinga Burton and Deonza Rogers about films they recommend depicting black life and the struggle for equality. The Italian film, The Battle of Algiers, recreates part of Algeria's fight for independence from France during the 1950s. The film itself was released in 1966. That was only four years after Algeria had won its independence. What impact did that movie have when it was released? Well, in France, it was banned. The French felt that it was not a great representation of their dealing with Algeria. It brings to light what colonialism looks like and what imperialism looks like, and France did not appreciate that. So there was a lot of grumbling, and they they banned it for about four or five years. Around the world, it was seen as something of a model for different organizations that were the Black Panthers, things like that, that were fighting to dismantle systems and institutions. Uh, inherently white supremacist and racist institutions. So it was it was looked at as if, oh, this is a playbook on how you go about using guerrilla tactics to fight a system that tries to oppress us. So I think that is, you know, the, the pivotal role that the film plays. But as a filmmaker, I find the film really interesting because it is not a documentary. It is not, but it is shot as if it were newsreels or documentaries. And again, it takes that basic core story that a, a documentary is about. Someone's telling a story and you reduce documentary down. It's somebody tells a story and I want to film it. If you take an interpretation of that story, you make this dramatic thing. They've married together these two concepts. And while you're watching it, you're thinking, am I watching it? It's black and white. It feels like a documentary. I'm seeing things from different angles, yet I feel like I am in the moment as it is happening. So it's a really interesting film in that regard, but it's also just, we're going to break down what it looks like to fight the power. If you want to go back to Spike, we're going to show you exactly what is needed, what is imperative to break down a system from the moment you think of it to the ending and what happens when the system decides it's gonna fight back and how you're gonna continuously fight them. And how do you view the Battle of Algiers today? Same. I think it is an important film to watch. I think it should be on the list, every list when we talk about protest films or rebellion films, when we talk about dismantling systems, when we talk about colonialism, imperialism, everything. We should have this film on those lists because it's very important. And the consequence of that film, right, of it being banned because France felt like it didn't do them justice. The director um, felt that he, he showed a balanced story. He felt he was being neutral. And I think that shows what the truth is when you say you're being neutral and then the other person feels like they've been wounded. The facts are what we're giving you. If you feel attacked, <laughs> that's you you know, being shown, like, I think someone said recently, they were writing a letter to the theater community, the Black theater actors and directors, and they said, we're going to introduce you to yourselves. And I think that's exactly what that film does for France. And I would argue, the spook who sat by the door does the same, and it was also forced out of theaters because of the 
critics reviews and it was seen as an anti-police film if you will notice most of the films that are on our list are seen as anti-police or anti-police state films and they do show you know what day is talking about in terms of how the film is shot you know the battle of algiers is shot it looks like a documentary in the same way if you think about the scene in the spook who sat by the door the, the uprising the riot scene i say riot in quotes it looks like it's newsreel footage. It looks like, you know, there's a camera nestled in the middle or the midst of a process that you are actually seeing on the news. Uh, it's so realistically shot, you know, it has a, a, a handheld camera, which gives it also, you know, is disruptive or puts the viewers into the scene. And so I think everything that Day is saying uh, as it relates to the Battle of Algiers is also reflective of how the spook who sat by the door was treated. You know, it wasn't banned outright, but it was definitely taken out of the theaters and theater owners wouldn't play it. And for many years, you couldn't even find a copy of it because it was, you know, they stopped producing it, uh, reproducing it. And I think that has to do with audiences seeing themselves, people focusing or siding more on the on the side of those uh, who are empowered versus those who aren't. And people don't really want to see their demise or see their full humanity in a way that Black people are typically not shown in film. We, we don't get to see our full humanity. So when you see that full humanity on full display, and then you see uh, the brilliance that is happening, not, you know, not only in this film, but also in the Battle of Algiers, the strategy that took place and the thinking that went into it. And it really debunks all of the stereotypes and myths that you have about these folks, you know, these Black people, people of color, you know, that is unsettling. So, of course, it would be banned. Of course, the spook who sat by the door played for a day and was gone, and then you couldn't find it literally for 25 years. Of course, those things would happen because you're implicated. You know, if you are, if you see yourself in the film, you're implicated in the film, and people don't want that. The black and white French film, La Haine, or Hate, as it was released in the U.S., follows the story of three young immigrants during riots in a Paris suburb. While it's in black and white, it was released in 1995, not an old film, a deliberate choice. Similar to Do the Right Thing, it's Yet another example of a movie being written in direct response to the killing of a black man while in police custody, this time in Paris. How does such violence in France translate to what's happening in the United States now? Oh, um, the same way that the video of George Floyd resonates to the French now. It really underscores that Black Lives Matter is global. It's global. Yes, exactly. That is what I think Lahaine, for me anyway, it was one of the first films I saw where Blackness was attacked outside of America. It was one of the first films, and I, I got a sense of, oh, wait, this is this is really about the same places in America, right? It could be any inner city or urban space where you have disenfranchised youth because of their race or culture. And I put together what was happening in this film with what I was seeing in my own city. And I thought, that's filmmaking. Oh my God, this is amazing. I understand what is happening around the world. White supremacy and racism isn't just an American thing. It's a global thing. 
And that film solidified that for me. Yes, the global struggle, right, uh, of the diaspora. And also you had, I mean, each of the characters actually had their own names in the film, right? And so Vincent was European and Jewish. You had Saeed, who was Arabic and Algerian. And then you had Hubert, who was, we never knew where in Africa he was from, but clearly African. And I think he was also Muslim. And so you have this film that's really showing these three men, young men, who are brought together by their economic circumstances, right? So they're racially different, their uh, religions are different, but they are coming together because they're in the, the banlieue, which is the French word for suburbs or what we would call slums in, in America. And they're growing up in these spaces. And so they recognize they actually need each other for survival. So you see them working together throughout the film. They're friends and they fall out and they, you know, they get mad at each other, but they always come back to each other because they actually need each other. And so I think that's a very brilliant thing about this film in that it is shot in black and white, which makes it plain, right? Racism, elitism, capitalism, economic, environmental racism, all of those things, all of those factors are global issues that impact anyone who's lit- literally, because in this particular movie, they're living on the fringes. They're on the outskirts of society. You know, whereas, you know, at the time when this movie was shot, if you had projects that were represented in the United States, housing projects, they were in the center of, of a city. It is remarkable how the French or how the Parisians did that. They kept the beautiful ancient parts of the city intact by pushing all the poor people to the suburbs. Right, which is what we're doing now in the U.S. But, you know, what's also interesting about this particular film is also that, you know, the the reason I think it resonated at the time was because you had this whole austerity movement that was happening in Europe and, and especially in France. And so, you know, people were literally starving. Like they, they were definitely, if you were disenfranchised, you were unemployed. They really did not have the resources that they needed to survive. So, you know, you had a lots of protests that were going on at the time in France, which is why I think it resonated. And we know that it resonated because it can, the police turned their backs on the filmmaker, Mathieu Kasselwitz, who at the time was only 26. He was 26 years old when he made this movie but they turned their backs on him and the cast as they walked in and out of the screening facilities. So you know that it resonated. And that resonates with what's happening now where you have police union officials who that are on the news saying that you have to respect us. You can't treat us like dogs. You can't like basically saying what Black Lives Matter is saying about Black lives. Like you have to treat us like human beings where as an organization, as an institution, it feels slighted once again, because the mirror has been put up to its face, their faces and saying, look at yourselves. So you try to push that onto someone else to say, you have to treat me better. I don't have to treat you better. After the film is made, the way that it's changed people's viewpoints and how the police interact with it and how the police are interacting with people today who are saying, look at yourselves, look what you're doing. When you look at video of police officers who are, we are protesting, rebelling against the abuse over-policing the murder of people, yet police officers are out doing the exact same thing to the people in the streets who are saying, stop doing that to us. It blows my mind that you are still doing what you did and was caught on video doing, and you're being caught on video doing it again and again and again. It's absurd. 
except it's tragic, so it's beyond absurd. The final film on your list is a documentary, The Murder of Fred Hampton. This is something very familiar to people of my generation. Fred Hampton was a black man from Illinois, a member of the Black Panther Party in Chicago. And under J. Edgar Hoover's direction, the FBI infiltrated the Black Panthers not only to undermine the party as a whole, but to assassinate Hampton specifically. Where do we begin with what we can learn from this story today? Fred Hampton was 21 years old when he died, murdered by the Chicago police. It blows my mind that he was 21 because he said, you can jail the revolutionary, but you cannot jail the revolution. Bobby Seale is going through all types of physical and mental torture. But that's all right, because we said even before this happened, and we're going to say it after this, and after I'm locked up, and after everybody's locked up, that you can jail revolutionaries, but you can't jail a revolution. Right. You might run a liberator like Harris Cleave out the country, but you can't run liberation out the country. You might murder a freedom fighter like Bobby Hutton, but you can't murder freedom fighting. And if you do, you come up with answers that don't answer explanations that don't explain. You come up with conclusions that don't conclude. And you come up with people that you thought should be acting like pigs, just acting like people and moving on pigs. And that's what we've got to do. And that line has always meant so much to me. And he was eloquent. I mean, he got in front of a crowd and expressed what I feel we couldn't express as a whole, right? We viscerally feel something. We know that this is wrong and, and we want something to change. And sometimes we can't articulate that. And he was one of those people who could get in front of a crowd and articulate exactly what we were feeling, what needed to be changed. If social media had been around then, jailing a revolutionary, a revolution never dies or whatever would be the hashtag, right? Like he would be Tamika Mallory. Where, you know, she gets in front of her crowd, she's like five feet tall, right? She gets in front of a crowd and she catalyzes you. She is speaking truth to power and she's telling you exactly what you need to hear and telling the powers that be, this is how we feel. This is what we learned from you. This is what you've done to us and you need to expect to be held accountable for it. She, to me, is what you see in Fred Hampton, right? And this documentary has always meant something to me because it blew my mind how young he was when he was making these changes and changing the world and doing amazing things. And then his murder was something that shocked me when I was young enough to be shocked by what the system does, right? Like I didn't know any better. And this was one of those first moments of, oh, wait, the system, the institution, it will kill you if you don't agree with it. If you don't do its bidding, it will actively come after you and destroy you. Why I think Day and I put this film on the list for sure is because of all the eloquent things that Day just said, but also because this film, in my mind, is the precursor to social media. Because at the time that he was murdered, he was being filmed for a documentary, like a profile on, on him and, and what he was doing as a Black Panther and, and his leadership and things of that nature. And so he was killed. And the film crew 
who were filming him, when they heard about the shooting on the radio, they rushed over and they were in Chicago, of course, and started filming the aftermath, so to speak. And so because that footage existed, when the police came out and basically lied um, about all of the factors surrounding it and their story was completely different from the survivors because some folks survived that shooting. Um, his pregnant girlfriend was in the bed next to him. But when the police came out and gave their version of events, and actually they, they went through this whole thing. You can see the uh, newsreel if you, if you look it up, where they actually laid out the, the whole apartment and they do this whole walkthrough and they basically lie about what happened. You know, those filmmakers released that footage and that is the footage that really exposed the lie and restored Fred Hampton's name and showed him as the victim that he was. He was asleep in his bed. He was drugged, to, and that's why he was asleep in his bed. Yes, and his girlfriend says that he was alive when they came and dragged him out of his bed, and then they shot him later in the hallway. So there's a lot around this documentary, and some of it has some technical issues, and I know sometimes people and I don't know why, <laughs> um, but sometimes people will turn away from something because, you know, there's a sinking with sound or, or things of that nature, but it was made in 1971. There are some technical issues with the film, but I think the, the meaning of the film and the fact that it was used to really free Fred Hampton from that horrible narrative is what's most powerful. Do you expect more films like those on this list will be created as we find ourselves reckoning with the most recent murders of Black people? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Documentaries for sure. But there's actually talk now, which is interesting, that they are going to make the Fred Hampton story into a fictional film, <laughs> which scares me. <laughs> I mean, they talked about it a while ago, but Ryan Coogler is attached to it, so... Here's hoping. Yeah. Well, if anybody can do something and make it like excellent <laughs> and factual and adhere to what actually happened to Fred Hampton and not engage in what I call these creative Olympics so that it appeals to larger audiences, it's Ryan Coogler. I mean, Fruitvale Station is indicative of that, you know, which is a phenomenal film. Um, and I think probably, I don't know if it's his best film, but it's damn close. There's a, a actually a script that I've just read that is based off of a, a novel and it's about an actual protest or rebellion that's happening. And so I think there are going to be a lot more of these films. Yeah. Um, now the question is whether or not these films are going to be good films. Or are we gonna go back to what Nzinga was talking about in terms of that black exploitation era where you're gonna throw money at everyone who says they wanna make a film about this, but it not, it's not necessarily gonna be a great film or even a responsible film. Well, and I would hope if they are Hollywood films or um, at least receive major distribution, that some part of the profit would be set aside for racial justice causes. I would hope, but I wouldn't hold my breath on that one. We're not making progress so much as people are feeling pressured. So if enough people are asking the question of where is this money going on the back of our Black trauma, then maybe someone will say, we're gonna give a portion of this to this organization. Netflix is doing a great job in terms of, hey, we're going to take, I think it was $100 million of the company's money and put it into black banks. That's action. 
It's not performative. That's actually doing some of the work to elevate Black businesses and to make and recognize that Black businesses are a part of, you know, capitalism. Now, I'm not a fan of capitalism, so don't let me say, that, you know, that's the answer, but that's one form of doing the actual work. So hopefully someone will say, we're going to fund this project. This movie is going to get made if it makes, when it makes a profit, because that's, you know, Hollywood, we're going to give a certain amount of that to Black Lives Matter or to some other organization that is actively out there doing the work. This has been fascinating. Deonza Rogers, Nasinga Burton, thank you so very much for sharing your list and for talking with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Emory professors of film, Deonza Rogers and Nasinga Burton. You can find their list of films for viewing in the era of Black Lives Matter on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. The program 1A is the home to the national conversation where we hear from listeners around the country on the most important topics of the moment. Jen White is the new host of the program. Jen, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure, Lois. How do you feel about assuming this role at such a pivotal time in our lives? Well, it's it's exciting. Um, it's also a little overwhelming, um, but I have the support of a really incredible team, the 1A production team. They're, they're excited, they are passionate and dedicated producers. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, to leaning into this work and convening this conversation. You are bringing some proud Midwestern cred to D.C. <laughs> yeah, native of Detroit, University of Michigan grad. For you, Jen, and my daughter, I must say, go blue. Thank you, go blue. <laughs> and you worked at Michigan Radio as well as Chicago Public Radio, very prestigious mm -hmm. NPR affiliate. And I read that you have television experience as well. How will your previous work inform your role on 1A? The thing I've learned in, in, at Michigan Radio, at WBEZ, when I was working in public television, is just the importance when you're hosting a show to listen. That has been um, really <laughs> hammered in, in over the years. I think so often, too often, um, when you listen to shows or you watch shows, the host is, is the biggest personality in the room. And that's not my goal with 1A. My goal is to serve as a facilitator of the important conversations we need to have and to really... Uh, for this work of making 1A a place where listeners are a part of the conversation, an essential part of the conversation. So that's what, that's what I'm bringing to the show. And, and that comes from the experience working at Michigan Radio and in public television and at WBEZ. Mm -hmm. 
You mentioned listeners. Of course, you have this balancing act of hearing the listeners and interviewing experts. Life work can be unpredictable, and that could make many people anxious. How do you feel about live versus pre-recorded work? I think there's a place for both. Um, I talk about live radio and I describe it as, as walking a tightrope that someone occasionally you know, skips over and lights on fire. And in live radio, your producers are your net. They're the people who are there to make sure um, you, don't, you don't fall. And there's excitement in live radio. There's a, a certain exhilaration that goes along with it. And, you know, when I think about some of the, the best conversations I've had in my personal life, they weren't prepared conversations. They weren't taped. They were conversations that were happening in the moment uh, with all of the, the dynamics and, and, um, and, and the, the passion that, that goes along with those conversations. And so there's something really exciting about live radio. Um, that being said, you know, working on podcasts as well and and the way you can build in sound and, and get really creative uh, with the way you shape a story, that's a lot of fun too. Uh, but I think the, the live radio, it, it keeps you on your toes. It does. And I, I love what you said about some of the best conversations you've ever had in your life were not prepared. You didn't prep and write questions for them. <laughs> right. I'm going to keep that in mind. Were there any particular episodes of 1A that really motivated you to apply for this position? Oh, wow. I, I can't say there was a single episode it was more the approach they took to the conversation. Um, we launched a show recently at WBEZ, my show, Reset. Um, that's the show I'm coming from. And a lot of how we shaped that show, I'll be honest, we borrowed some of it from 1A, <laughs> the way they centered listener voices, um, some of the pacing of the show. That, that really uh, resonated with me. And so it was, it was less about a single conversation and more about the way they, they approached the importance of the show being a convener for these important national conversations. That was really what attracted me. Right. I wondered about your relocating from Chicago to D.C. How would you describe moving to another city during the <laughs> pandemic? <laughs> Oh, wow. It was an adventure. That's how I describe it. You can't move it. in Zoom format? No, you can't. But we did have to find a home uh, using Zoom and FaceTime um, and, and doing a lot of virtual tours. So, you know, that in and of itself was an adventure, hoping we what we saw on the video would actually uh, live up to, to real life. Um, you know, we're neck deep in boxes right now and just we're trying to be patient with ourselves as we as we um, whittle down essentially what's two and a half households. My, my husband and I have never had everything we own out of storage and we're fairly recent newlyweds. We, we got married in, in 2016 and so 
because we we moved um, when we got married, we we never really had a chance to combine households, and so we're in that process now. So it's pandemic. It's you know whittling down our belongings. There's a lot going on. Oh. And by the way, you're hosting this live <laughs> national call-in show. Beginning, and then there's that. <laughs> it sounds like you have a great attitude for it all. Um, before we go, I, as a Chicagoan myself originally, oh. I must ask, um, will you be able to survive without Chicago pizza and hot dogs? <laughs> So here, here's what's going to happen. I've, I've already told my colleagues at WBEZ because of the pandemic, I wasn't able to say goodbye the way I really wanted to say goodbye. So I'm planning Hug Tour 2021, <laughs> um, which is when I go back to Chicago when we're on the other side of the pandemic, hopefully in 2021, and I will hug everyone I want to hug, and I will have deep dish pizza and mm. several hot dogs, <laughs> and I will... Um, it just take in the, the beautiful views of the city skyline and visit some of my, my favorite places. So I don't plan to go without uh, pizza for very long. Good. Well, <laughs> I, I would love to give you one of those virtual hugs now and wish you all the best. I hope we'll get to meet when it's safe. And congratulations on this fantastic new role. Thank you so much. Jen White is the new host of 1A, heard weekdays at 10 a.m. here on WABE. You've been listening to City Lights, a celebration of the arts and the ways in which we express ourselves creatively. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. with some Atlanta theater treasures. Terry Burrell, Courtney Collins, and Jamil Jude. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and he produced the segment with the Emory Film Professors. I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to 90.1 W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.